Welcome to NCBA's Cattleman's Call podcast with host Lane Nordland. Hello, everyone. It's time for today's Cattleman's Call podcast. Lane Nordland, happy to be with you here once again. And today we have two outstanding guests joining the call and answering that cattleman's call and we're going to be talking a little more about conservation and environmental stewardship with uh, with our guests today and I'm honored to be sitting at the table here uh, this show being recorded during the 2020 cattle industry convention at NCBA trade show uh, first I'll introduce uh, the the man of the week the winner of the environmental stewardship award for this year honored just uh, last evening mr. Jim Strickland from Florida with Blackbeard's ranch jim welcome to the conversation i tell you what this is quite an honor to be be here with somebody like you and the gentleman sitting to my right it, it truly is and as i introduce that gentleman uh he is the nrcs chief matt lore uh, matt thank you so much for joining us here today well thank you very much it's always a pleasure when i have a chance to to visit with with producers who are excelling at conservation and especially being here at ncba uh just the stories that i hear are phenomenal so congratulations jim and it's an honor to be on your show today well, happy to have you both here, and uh, Jim, you have such such an incredible uh, ranching story to tell, and uh, a lot of folks have probably seen your profile on NCBA's Cattlemen to Cattlemen, where they uh, previewed the regional ESAP winners, but there's just so much that our listeners can, can learn from all of the ESAP uh, honorees, but I just think your, your model, the... the uh, the, the trials and tribulations you've probably went through out in the countryside to, to get to where you're at. And I know there, there's a lot of progress still yet to be made on every single ranch in the United States. But let's just talk about Blackbeard's Ranch, your role in agriculture. I know you're a sixth generation uh, operation, but for our friends at home that maybe haven't heard about the operation, uh, just, just uh, let's talk about that. All right, well, let's go. Uh, I tell you what, let's let's go first to the name because probably a lot of people out there want to know what Blackbeard's Ranch is. Well, Blackbeard was a pirate, and Florida has a real history of being piratical. I mean, so whether it was Jose Gaspar or all the pirates that plied the, the Caribbean and the Gulf of Mexico, there is rumors and there is a lot of talk about all of the treasure that was buried in that part of the world as you come up the Mayaca River. That's why we named it Blackbeard's Ranch. But Blackbeard's is just uh, outside of Sarasota, and right now we're about 18 minutes outside of the first uh, planned development that got the moniker in Florida as being the fastest growing planned development in the United States of America. That's my neighbor. That, that uh, causes a lot of concern for, for, for folks. Uh, what, what came through your mind first off when you heard that that development was going to be coming in? Well, uh, that development happened to be a ranch that I, I uh, rode horses and uh, worked the cattle before the uh, development ever started. So I knew what it was whenever it was rough land. Development is really a master concept that is recognized around the United States as being a whole conceptual plan. The great thing is it was done right. The bad thing is that, you know, it took up a lot of agricultural land. But with doing that, it gave us a lot of opportunities to talk to a huge amount of people that were learned people that were on the coast. Most of them moved into the state of Florida. No, so with, with the issues of losing land to development, we also got the opportunity to talk to those folks and those voters along the coast on what we're, in, what we're doing in agriculture in the heart of Florida. 
And Jim, I'm going to stick with you here for just a, a few more moments. Uh, let's just maybe talk about the diversity of, of cattle that you have on the ranch, maybe some of the, the grazing techniques you have, and then I want to jump more back into the conservation aspect of that. You've got it. And, of course, conservation is a big part of what we do, and NRCS played a big part in what we're doing. Blackbeard's Ranch is about six miles long. We border Mayaka State Park, and that is known as one of the uh, wild and scenic rivers is the Mayaka River that comes right by our ranch, doesn't go through it. Uh, we, uh, we run Beefmaster cattle. We have Brangus cattle. We also use some uh, Charlotte bulls out of... Uh, out of Illinois that came from Fogelsong's ranch, uh, Steve Fogelsong and his son. Uh, that's where we buy our, our Charlotte bulls from. And we bring them down there and those are our terminal crosses. But we do, we use, uh, we use beef master and Brangus bulls uh, to, re, to, we really have worked at having an animal that will survive in the subtropical climate of Florida. That we can't change the climate but we can certainly make sure that animal can thrive in that climate. Well, Matt, I don't want to leave you out here. But, I'm uh, listening to this. <laughs> uh, for our friends at home, uh, and Matt, I'm, I'm just going to talk about myself a little bit here, too. Uh, the first time I ever heard you speak was in North Carolina. Uh, my mom uh, works for the conservation districts in, in Montana. She's worked for there for most of my life, and she runs an, uh, an event called the Envirothon up in Montana, and you spoke at the National Envirothon many, many years ago, and uh, and that was kind of my first, this before I was in high school, but you wow. talked about, of course, your background, you shared your message of, of being in production agriculture and your, and, your, and your leadership roles, of course, and you talked about being a National FFA officer. Well, that kind of sparked my interest in FFA. Wow. Uh, my grandpa was the first, I got to give him credit, and then uh, and that kind of really sp did, did spark my, my interest, and I went on to be a state FFA president in Montana. I did run for national office, and, and I, I didn't get it, and I, I consider that a blessing, because <laughs> I got to go on to Montana State and do some great things with Michael Stevenson. Yeah, that's I, right. I worked for Michael uh, as, at Montana State University Foundation, so I just want to thank you for kind of inspiring oh, me um, many years ago. But, uh, Matt, let, let's talk about you a little bit, uh, your background in agriculture and uh, how you became the chief. I just think that's one of the coolest titles <laughs> in Washington, D.C., the chief of the yeah. NRCS. Well, first of all, thank you for sharing that. Um, whenever I hear stories like that, uh, it, it's very touching. It makes me feel a little old, I'm not going to lie. But uh, I've been very blessed my whole life uh, to be involved in this great industry of agriculture. I'm a fifth-generation farmer in Virginia Shenandoah Valley and literally grew up learning conservation, working alongside my grandfather and my father. We raise uh, poultry, uh, close to a million broiler chickens a year, and beef cattle. We do 20 acres of sweet corn that all of my kids are able to be involved with that we sell there on our farm each summer. But um, yeah, FFA has been a very important part of my background, was an ag teacher right out of college. And then when my grandmother passed away in the late 90s, had a chance to purchase my grandparents' farm, went back to the farm and then got involved in politics and was in the state legislature and then was uh, commissioner of agriculture in the state of Virginia um, about 10 years ago and then served uh, as a knowledge center director for farm credit and then went back to the farm as a full-time farmer again when I got a call about a year and a half ago from the secretary asking if I would be interested. So serving as chief of this agency is truly one of the greatest uh, honors of my life to be able to work hand-in-hand -hand with producers like Jim and our staff to help address the resource concern. So very, very blessed to be where I am. Um, and again, just fortunate to be able to, to participate in events like this. 
So obviously in your role, I, I think it's refreshing to producers in the countryside uh, for them to know that there's someone in these uh, agency positions that understands what they're going through. Jim, how, how do you feel knowing that there is a farmer leading up the NRCS? Well, I tell you what, we all know that we're less than, what, 2% of the population of the United States to have Matt in that position and call him chief and know his, know his background in the Shenandoah you know, Valley, plus all of the other experiences, life experiences, that help him to make those decisions that affect the United States of America, our water quality, our water quantity, our sustainability of ranch lands, uh, all those things really line themselves up to a good man in the right spot right now that, that we can have faith in. We had a conversation this morning and it was very evident as soon as we started a conversation that he knew what he was talking about. So besides knowing what you're talking about and having a feel for the human side of agriculture, it really means a lot to us. Well, and, and I will say thank you, Jim. This really goes back to Secretary Purdue, who was here yesterday. Uh, he believes in serving our farmers and ranchers and private forest landowners, and he made it a top priority when he became secretary that he wanted folks in these key leadership positions that understand production agriculture. And so you look throughout USDA, and there literally are dozens of agency heads and undersecretaries that came from the farm. And I personally, I'm the first chief in 25 years that came from the farm to Washington. And I think it does lend some credibility to our producers that you don't have to explain to me what a conservation easement is or, or what a nutrient management system looks like because I've done it. And so, I, again, it's a testament to the secretary because he really knows that if you're going to serve farmers, you have to have farmers in those key positions. So obviously conservation is a part of the NRCS title and uh, the Environmental Stewardship Award program is centered on conservation. Um, as we look back towards uh, Florida, Jim, back, back to your ranch, when did you become environmentally conscious? I, I know you were always we're environmentalists on the ranch, but when did you really? When did that come to the forethought in your mind to be successful? Sharing that story and, and participating on so many levels of that conversation, from just rancher to rancher to policymakers to making sure you have a future in the ranching business. Boy, that's a really great question. If we start at the very beginning. Uh, I was not privy to having land left to me in the family. I'm very envious of those that do. So most of my cattle history is on big tracts of leased land. So being in Florida, where we have now about a, a thousand people a day moving in, in the, into the state of Florida with tourism the way it is, that I lost a lot of leased land. I had cattle all the way to Sarasota Bay that bordered almost on the Gulf of Mexico for two or three miles along there. Our fences literally ran out into the bay in, in, in that day. But as, as growth happened, we started moving into the center estate. So, so I understood, I think, just that coupled with I was a Boy Scout and a Cub Scout, and I spent a lot of times in the, a lot of time in the woods with some really good mentors, which is a huge part of what I constantly think of is mentoring those folks that are that are coming up. So, uh, I really got it. Whenever I have been blessed and I've been fortunate in my life to have some mentors, and we uh, during the the economic downturn of the state of Florida, we were bullish on America and bullish on uh, Florida, and started buying land. Uh, so I, I have a, a partner which has uh, has some 
money, of which that was our plan, let's buy land in Florida. This was a special place, was Blackbeard, because of where it is, the ecosystems that it has, and I was very fortunate at the first meeting that we started talking about conservation and how are we going to work conservation into this big piece of dirt that's six miles long next to a wild and scenic river, next to a state park, right outside of uh, one of the fastest growing regions in the United States. And that's whenever, when we met uh, National Wildlife Refuge Association, uh, the director of Florida and the Gulf, Julie Morris, was at the table. And through her guidance is where I've got the knowledge to walk us through all of these conservation easement issues. Um, how do you deal with them? How do you work with them? The different types of easements. And I will let you know, I do have a background in agricultural appraisal. I am an ag appraiser. I have uh, uh, done a lot of work in, in that land world. So, so really, that was where it started. So you, you bring up the term easement, and before we started uh, a lot, uh, before we started today's podcast, I mentioned that a lot of people either really like easements or they're very fearful of easements, um, and I think that's a lot about what kind of easement it is, but also just the education behind uh, what they do provide landowners and conservation efforts. Um, what type of conservation easements have you worked with the most? And I guess what are some of those areas that you would like to, to share with producers about the opportunity that they are, are providing your operation and could provide theirs? I've got two really distinctly different type of easements. Uh, one of them was there, our local water management district that, that covered our area from Tampa down, down to uh, South Florida. And I have land that lies within the body of a of a tract of land they own. I went to them and said, would you be interested in leasing? They said, no, would you be interested in selling? I said, no. So at some point, you know, we started talking about eminent domaining my ranch that's lied within the middle of theirs. And we asked for what purpose? And they said, we don't want you to develop it. So what we did was with the help of, uh, with the help of Bill Galvano, which happens to be president of the Senate now, he was a young fledgling representative of the state of Florida, that we worked with the water management district. So what we did, we traded a conservation easement accomplished the goals of the water management district of not having a development right in the middle of a pristine piece of property and they let me have a grazing lease so we worked under the under the rules the regulations and the guidance and the plan of nrcs i took it one step further and reduced the stocking rate a little further than what nrcs had just to make sure that i was always on the safe side because we live in the land of hurricanes and droughts in Florida. And being a leased land operator, I always had to have more dirt, more grass than what I needed because you did not know when a lease was going to be terminated. Uh, Matt, what, what's maybe some knowledge that you would like to share with our audience uh, within RCS's role in, in conservation easements? Absolutely. And so personally, I've been a believer in conservation easements for many, many years. And several years ago, I actually went through the process on my own family farm. Uh, and even on our part of the farm, we placed permanent conservation easements. And then on my parents' farm that we later bought, convinced them to put conservation easements on their property as well. Because for me as a fifth generation farmer, I have six kids. It's very important that this land will always stay in production agriculture. Uh, here at NRCS, we have a program called ASEP, the Agricultural Conservation Easement Program. And within that, there are two 
types of easements. There's the ag land easements, which are working to protect working lands, ag land, farmlands that will stay uh, in production agriculture forever. And then we have the WRE, or the Wetland Reserve Easement Programs. Again, taking those those lands that have been previously converted, um, restoring them back to their natural conditions and habitats. So as an agency, uh, we are appropriated about $450 million a year that's dedicated to helping producers place permanent conservation easements on their land. And for me as a benefit, I can say it's important that this land will always stay in production agriculture. And so it's, it's a it's a lengthy process, and it's one that takes a lot of forward thinking because it's it's forever. So you have to think about your great-great-grandkids and what that means. And so there's a lot of things that families need to consider, but it's definitely a great tool to make sure that farmers can receive some type of compensation, but that land will always stay in production agriculture. Well, and uh, correct me, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service also has easements too as well? They do. It's separate than NRCS, yep. but there yep. are different easement programs out there. Because I believe our ranch, some land that we have, is mm-hmm. through U.S. Fish and Wildlife sure. Service. And uh, big shout out to Aurelia Skipwith, yeah, the, uh, the, the new director of U.S. Yeah. Fish and Wildlife Services. Mm-hmm. So, Jim, obviously uh, there's multiple easements uh, that producers can partake in. Uh, for, for your operation, I believe uh, you mentioned that you have an RCSWRE easement. Uh, how does that play a role in, in your conservation efforts? Well, whenever we started down this road with the help of Julie Morris from National Wildlife Refuge Association, we looked at all of them to see what easements were available in the state of Florida. And we had three. We had Florida Forever, which has been the model for a lot of land conservation throughout the United States. We have the Rural Rural Family Lands Protection Program that's under Florida Department of Agriculture. And then we had available to us WREs. On the landscape level area of which we were looking at, the WRE worked best. And so we worked our way through that. Um, Took a lot of talk, a lot of uh, learning on my part. Uh, Julie walked uh, walked me through that as as far as my advisor. We had some great staff at NRCS in in the state of Florida uh, that worked with us. Uh, We went through the whole process. One is that uh, Florida, because they have different GARC rates, and there's an acronym, another acronym that we're throwing that we're throwing in there, of which you don't negotiate the price. That on the other two, of which are administered by the state funds, uh, DEP Florida Forever and Rural Family Lands through the Department of Ag, you know, it is an appraisal process. These these uh, prices on which you um, sell your basically your development rights and under WRE you restore the land back to the original hydrological conditions of which it was. So there is a 1700 acre piece uh, there on the ranch that had been altered. All, almost all of it was improved and so it had been ditched and drained. So that seemed to be a really great area and also it comes down to funding comes down to funding all of the time and at that point there was enough funding within the budgets to where we could do a WRE on that on that piece of property so we are we have closed on it and of course there were some other partnerships that were involved in in getting that done of which I didn't have a play in but uh, Julie Morris did she put a lot of different people together to make sure that we could fund, fund that and like obviously we've talked about multiple uh, easements and of course uh, Chief Floor shared that. How important is it for producers to look at every aspect of an easement and look at all all entities whether it's on the state level, nonprofit level or through through the agencies? Um, 
how important is it to do that work so it fits your operation, it fits what your future needs may be? That's a great question. An easement's not for everybody. We live in a state to where we can have a ranch that might be worth forty, fifty thousand dollars an acre, and you move another another thirty to fifty miles, and it might be worth eight thousand. You move another thirty or fifty miles, and you're getting in the heart, and you're not near those coastal areas, and it might be worth four to five thousand dollars an acre. So there's a lot of things that come into play, and it all comes back to it all comes back to money and budgets and what you want to accomplish in the state of Florida. And I will say one thing is that so every farming operation is a little different, and when you go through the process, each farmer is able to negotiate, if you will, what's most important to them. So where our farm is located, right off a major highway, uh, we were able to, to write into our easement that there is that a, there is the potential if we wanted to have a, a, a winery or maybe a wedding venue 50 years down the road, um, there's those provisions are included when you actually develop the easement. So it doesn't mean that you can never do any type of development, but you can specify specific types of things that still re relate to agriculture. Um, but again, it's, it's, a, it's a long process because there's so many things that a farmer needs to consider because it is forever. And uh, I'd certainly encourage it, but as Jim said, it's not for everyone. And um, again, it's, but I think it's a valuable tool to help save our farmland and our wetlands for next generations. So currently my wife and I live in Bozeman. Uh, both of us did Beautiful our undergraduate degrees yeah. there in Bozeman, Montana. It's some of the best topsoil in the state of Montana. It's mm -hmm. 15 to 20 feet deep, and it's all getting built on as well. It's one of the fastest-growing communities. Uh, for it, It's the fastest-growing community for millennials. Um, it's one of the fastest-growing communities of its size uh, next to Salt Lake City. And there's a lot of production agriculture north of town. The valley all used to be production agriculture. And the only way that some of these producers can bring the next generation on or acquire more land is through a conservation easement. Jim, what's your suggestion to young people out there uh, possibly using this, possibly using it as a tool to continue on a family operation or get a start on your own without having uh, the back in the land? Because my wife and I really don't have the opportunity to, to go full in on a ranch either. We're going to have to buy land or buy into an operation as well. This is what we always refer to as the kitchen table talks. Yep. This is where the family gets together. We're going back to these easement agreements. Uh, and I can use Florida, uh, but every one of them is different. And you negotiate those things, just like the chief just mentioned. You know, are we going to have a home site for, say, an heir that wants to be on there? Or there might be two children that need to have a home on that property. Or you, may want, you might want to be able to convert it to farmland or convert it to timberland. So in our state, rural family lands has a matching aspect uh, with the, the federal government that they can do it because of the instruments that convey the title to that land, where Florida Forever is a, is a little harder to partner with, with federal money on there. But Speaking to the young people, you really have to look to the old people because the old people are the ones that are going to have to understand that whenever we pass this on, essentially sell the development rights, and when you sell those development rights, which is what most appraisals are based on, you, the person buying those also gets a lot of other things. And you didn't ask me this question, but in the future we need, in the future we need to talk about ecosystem services. So, so right now while you're sitting around the table, we want to make sure just because Grandpa wants to see that land stay the way it looks, 
we have to make sure that the rest of us understand what grandpa does is perpetual. Those easements of which are in Florida are into perpetuity, which means forever the family or whoever they sell that property to has to abide by that legal instrument that took your development rights, maybe left you with the ability to do some different things, but whoever buys that has to abide by, by those. It's something we need to talk with a family and a learned uh, land use attorney with somebody like what I've had, the, you know, been very fortunate to have some advisors with Florida Conservation Group, which is the group we have there in Florida, uh, to help us through these pitfalls. This is a serious decision by a family that you are going to get the benefit of some money now, but you also have to know you're going to have to take care of that land forever. I'm really getting off into the weeds on this one, but I think you brought up a really good point about having the the uh, kitchen table discussions. How important is it for operations, no matter how many generations, to have a solid business plan, have a mission statement, and have their goals for short-term and long-term? You both can jump in on yeah, this, too. Yeah, absolutely. I'll let the chief go first. Well, as, as the father of six kids, I can say that it's extremely important. And, and I have a sister, right? So, I mean, and some of these conversations can be, can be tough. And unfortunately, with farm succession in general, there's a lot of conversations that aren't had because of fear of, of one child feeling slighted over another one. But, but the thing I've learned is... Um, being equal and being fair are not always the same thing. So in many cases, if you have multiple siblings, maybe one is, is the one that wants to pursue the farm, and there are steps in proactive succession planning you can take to compensate the other siblings. Uh, it may not be in farmland. It could be in life insurance money or other investments. But those are very important conversations to have, and honestly, they're, they're tough. But you can't, I can't stress the importance enough of being able to make sure people kind of know what the plan is up front because it breaks your heart to see families torn apart and not speak to one another because of a decision that was made. So I think, it, and again, when we began this process of putting conservation easements on our farm, my kids were young, but we wanted them to know, hey, we want to keep this land in farming. Um, you know, there may be a chance for one or all of you to be engaged in farming at some point, but there's not going to be a Walmart on the land, and we wanted them to know that up front. And so those conversations are just important to have. Well, thank you for that insight. I think everyone listening to this just picked up some great information and tips. And, and again, it's the most awkward conversation that people are going to have, and that's why I call it the awkward conversation. Um, but other conversations, Jim, that you have created through your ranch and uh, outreach is bringing people from the communities out, people that are, are from town or, or even policymakers to show them what you're doing out in the countryside, maybe improving water quality, improving the ecosystems. Could you talk about uh, just your experiences and the conversations you've had with people about your ranch, bringing them out there, and how that's maybe changed their perception? Maybe it hasn't, but, uh, but overall, uh, just opening up the conversation about what we do in the countryside. That's a great question. It's a great success story. Huge, great success story. Living in Florida, where you have a thousand people a day moving into our great state of Florida, we have some 162 million tourists that visit our state too. We live in that area of Florida uh, that is close to the coast. Keep in mind, nearly anywhere you live in Florida is, you know, is close to, uh, close to that coast. So, we formed a group of ranchers and scientists 
And this is where it's really special to my heart that we as ranchers, as agriculturalists can speak and we are believed because we are who we are. We're one of the most believable people in society in America that whenever a farmer or rancher talks, you want to listen and you want to believe them. But when you can couple that with the scientific data and research that shows that whenever I'm speaking, I'm not just speaking from the heart, which most of us do, but I'm speaking with the heart, from the heart, with data and research that have been done on that piece of dirt, whether it's mine, whether it's regional, whether it's in a water basin, whether it's an area, uh, whether it uh, flows into Okeechobee or flows to the Atlantic or flows to the Gulf, if we can couple that, so Florida Conservation Group, what we did to have those huge success stories was we formed a group which now represent approximately 3 million acres of, of people that own land that said, we want to do this on our ranches. We want to open our ranches up. We want to have those dialogues. And, and how do we go about it? Ours happened to start because we were next to a huge growth area. We use food as a conveyor. So we started with honey because we have this large group of I heard you had really good honey, yeah. A lot of people a lot of people refer to it as nectar of the gods. Um, it is a really really good honey. It's all native wildflower honey. We started with that and part of our slogan was we're conservation and agriculture meet. So we started with that because everybody understands the story of honey, that whole life story, that regenerative story. Well, from, from there, as we, as we could have those conversations, we started uh, breaking out into bringing people to the ranch. So we have brought so many different people to the ranch. Um, I, could, I could go on, but specialized groups, we had some huge success stories doing that. And also that led into more branded opportunities for the ranch, too, with branded uh, products. Well, it did. So, so from the honey, we uh, we we reached out and said, well, if we're going to, if we're going to have honey available, and we're going to have people staying at the ranch, you talked about policymakers. You talked about all of the environmental groups. We recently had a meeting that Florida Conservation Group sponsored, which is our nonprofit, science-driven group of ranchers and and scientists. And when we had that meeting, we actually pulled together, first time in history, we pulled together approximately 20 environmental groups, sportsmen's groups, to lobby for what? To agree on one thing. We can't agree with every, everybody on everybody's agenda when you bring 20 different environmental groups together and cattlemen's group and agricultural groups. But we agreed on one thing. We agreed on conservation easement funding. So there is, a, there is a piece floating throughout the media in Florida that has Florida Conservation Group, Florida Cattlemen's Association, Nature Conservancy, Sierra Club, Audubon. It goes on and on that says we live in Florida, we work in Florida, and we believe in spending conservation funding. And those are groups that necessarily don't get along on all, all subjects, like you said, but just to that one point, it's all, they all support the conservation easement. We all came together for Florida. And I think that's a great point in the world that we work in at NRCS. It's all about partners and collaboration. And uh, there's nothing more rewarding than to see a project like that where you have different agencies and groups come together to support a single cause where, you're right, we may not always agree on every issue, but it's finding those common areas and working together is really powerful to see. So uh, as we look towards other environmental issues or other factors that uh, – influence our decisions out on the ranch. Um, I, I mentioned to you last night that in Montana, we're getting feral 
swine coming down from Canada, Saskatchewan, and Alberta in that region. How big of an impact do those feral animals have on, on, on your ranch and, and its conservation goals? Well, we live in Florida and feral hogs are a tremendous problem, not unlike a lot of other states. You just mentioned Montana. I would have never anticipated hogs running wild in, in the cold hinterlands of Montana. I trust I trust what you say. Uh, we are we are rehydrating the wetlands of a 1700 acre piece on our ranch we also do have some sod fields on some hay fields our cattle grazing areas and what the damage that a group of hogs can do to you've just restored a group of wetlands one or two nights you can actually destroy tens and tens of acres uh, with one small group of hogs. You couple that with the amount of hogs that, you know, three months, three weeks, three days, you start having another set of hogs. And, and so we have a hard problem to deal with, and that's feral hogs that cause a tremendous amount of damage. There's a, there's a ranch just north of us that is, is ours, is Strickland Ranch, and uh, last year, with the help, by the way, of NRCS USDA, we brought out 700 head of feral hogs off one 5,000-acre track. So we are constantly working to keep those hogs under control, and there's a lot of research being, being done, and, and uh, so we are really anticipating, probably not in the next few weeks or the next few months, but uh, we need that research. Well, and if I could tap onto that, so part of the 2018 Farm Bill was, was recognizing the impact of feral swine, and so uh, Congress has granted us $75 million to partner with APHIS, and we're, we're, we've been given half, and they've been given half, and part of that is we've identified uh, the 10 southeastern states from Texas around the North Carolina that have the greatest populations, and we're working with partner groups, putting proposals together. We've identified the areas, and the projects have been selected, and the goal is to see what really works in tackling this problem and we'll have the money in place a couple years to evaluate and hopefully can go back to Congress for the next farm bill and say this is what works but we need a lot more money because they're devastating. So we've talked a lot about the resources that are available uh, for educational material uh, whether that be conservation easements or just uh, collaboration with a local NRCS or USDA office. What what are your words of encouragement for, for producers of all ages to, to come in, to, to talk about these programs, possibly utilize these programs, and not be not be too overly cautious of coming in to a U.S. government office? Well, that's, that's a great question. And so we're very fortunate at NRCS. We have about 2,500 offices all across the country. Many of them are co-located with Farm Service Agency, almost 10,000 employees that are there uh, willing and ready and anxious to serve. So for us, it's about letting people know that there is a resource available come into a local office and just share what what your resource concerns are we have trained staff that will come out and do a visit do an assessment help them whether it's a conservation plan maybe it's linking them up with what farm bill programs we have to address a specific concern or looking at an entire operation uh, it's there's so many programs 4.3 billion dollars a year we administer through these programs but just letting them know that our folks, uh, they're trained, they're, they're excited to help, and they're willing to help, and that um, just come into a local office and, and see what we can do for them. Jim, why do producers need to go in those offices? We have to work with them. We also have to work for them because, because those offices can't lobby themselves. We have to lobby for them. If you feel really strongly about something in your state, whether it's Montana or Florida, 
you know, participate with Farm Bureau, with Cattlemen's Association, go in and lobby for them for those programs that you need. I can tell you they make a stark difference in a high-growth state like Florida. The funding that we can get, not only for conservation easement programs, but for those cost-share programs that NRCS has, they are vitally important to sustaining that ranch. And uh, keep in mind that we're just not sustaining that ranch for that owner or the future owners. When you sustain a cattle ranch, you also sustain the water quality, the water quantity, the carbon sequestration, the wildlife connectivity, the endangered species habitat that you are doing. So when, whenever you do a conservation easement or you keep a ranch in business by helping with cost share pra practices which protect their water quality and their water quantity you are really doing some great things so so you need to help these folks you need to help uh, the chief isn't going to go up there. He can't lobby like we can. You know, whenever you have an opportunity within CBA and go to Boots on the Hill, take those Boots on the Hill. But always remember, it's not a cattle ranch or something better. If you have land conversion, it is a cattle ranch or something worse. So, you know, let's keep these cattle ranches uh, viable and sustainable. And to that point, good conservation makes good financial sense. And it's, even though some of these practices, there may be some out-of-pocket expenses, the long-term benefits uh, are extremely financially beneficial. So that's a message I get lost sometimes. It's the right thing to do, but even it's the right financial thing to do for their operation. So, Jim, as the, the winner of the Environmental Stewardship Award, uh, you were honored again last night, uh, you, you found out last night, what is your overall goal in using this as an opportunity to help share your story so other producers can share their success stories or inspire other people to really kick off more conservation efforts on their operations? Outreach and collaboration. We've talked about the low percentage of the population that us agriculturalists are. If you talk about a rancher like myself, you're getting down below 1% of the population. Whenever you go to the polls and you see, you know, how many voters you have in your area and you think I'm 1%, you need to collaborate with people. You need to work with people. You need to reach out to people. We have a great story. But couple that great story back with those scientists and researchers like we have done that have a group that has collaborated together, that works together, can speak as one voice, not just a cowboy, but take a cowboy and a scientist into a room to lobby in Washington or your state capital, it's going to make a huge, huge difference. Chief Floor, any last words you'd like to share with our listeners at home, words of inspiration to, to uh, keep going in times of, of down prices or just uh, looking towards opportunities to, to keep farms and ranches in well, the family? Well, thank you. And first of all, I'll say that being able to sit around the table and hear stories like, like Jim's, it's, it's inspiring to me. And it really is why I get up every morning and go to work for conservation. It's, it's the legacy that's being left. It's the, the benefits to the environment, but how agriculture continues to, to grow and be sustained. So uh, thank you for this chance to be in the conversation today. Uh, agriculture is so important to this nation, and to be able to see that continue through good conservation practices 
really is what drives our agency. So uh, just excited to be where I am today and excited to see the progress that we continue to make and really blessed to be in this position. So thanks for the chance to share. Well, gentlemen, I know we've been having a great conversation here. and We have a very busy day ahead of us at the Cattle Industry Convention. Jim, is there any other areas that you would like to just, any last tips? And I know you have some people that you'd like to thank for the support of ESAP and uh, just awareness of the award itself. But uh, I'll turn the floor over to you, sir. Thank you so much. Uh, here's what I'd recommend is that whenever we all go home from this convention, which has been a great convention here in San Antonio, is really identify those ranchers and those ranches that can help on this ESAP program because that's going to be one of our true saviors is the ability to convey the environmental aspects of what we do for society. Great program, uh, ESAP. Uh, I really love it. Uh, we've had we've got some great we've got some of the greatest sponsors in the world. We have the National Cattlemen's Foundation, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Uh, we have uh, Corteva, and uh, we have NRCS, uh, which is playing a huge part in, uh, in in selection process. But they also lend a great amount of. Uh, of stature to this program when you have all these people now the one last one is uh, McDonald's and uh, you know they always ask the Super Bowl champion is it where are you going to go and it's like we're going to Disney World well I live right by Disney World I leave here I'm going to McDonald's thank you for your sponsorship they got uh, free uh, quarter pounders those fresh beef quarter pounders right out front here but, uh, again, uh, thank you so much to Chief Matt Lohr and Jim Strickland, the recipient of the ESAP Award this year. Um, of course, for more information on, on the programs that we talked about that USDA's and RCS does provide, just make sure and just stop in and say hello to your neighbors at the USDA service centers across the countryside because there's a lot of uh, ranch spouses that work in those offices too that understand the programs and what and what you're going through and they, they want to help you be successful and uh, Jim what's your website maybe that folks can go and learn more about well if you want to learn more about Blackbeard's Ranch it's uh, blackbeardranch.com if you want to learn more about our Florida Conservation Group it's uh, floridaconserve.org and Florida Conservation Group is made up of ranchers and scientists. So check out either one of those websites. And we also have uh, Fresh from Florida through Florida Department of Agriculture's USDA Prime Beef uh, there at Blackbeard's Ranch. And we have our uh, world-famous Mangalista hogs. Uh, we have pork there at the ranch, too. There's a self-promotion right there. <laughs> but I really appreciate the time to date. I'm going to tell you, getting to spend time with the chief and you, uh, three agriculturalists sitting around the table right here, just like those kitchen tables that we talked about. Thank you both so much. Well, Jim, thank you so much. And maybe we'll... Get a little honey down there too someday. Now I'll have to stop down. I'll I'll fl I'll just drive down the road real quick and stop by and see you someday. But again, it, it truly has been a, a real pleasure, and uh, I would just like to encourage our, our friends tuning in today. Um, you can actually see images and watch a video of of the of Blackbeard's Ranch uh, there on the Cattlemen to Cattlemen uh, YouTube page. I'd encourage you to to watch those ESAP uh, uh, awardees and uh, the district awardees because uh, we got some outstanding individuals that were honored last night too but again congratulations to Jim Strickland and his team at Blackbeard's Ranch and of course thank you so much to Chief Matt Lower for joining us here today and if you have any suggestions or questions about the Cattleman's Call podcast make sure and drop us a note that can all be found on our page on the ncba.org website 
Thanks for answering the Cattleman's Call here today. I'm Lane Nordland. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for tuning in to NCBA's Cattleman's Call podcast with Lane Nordland. For more information, visit ncba.org and make sure to subscribe to the podcast today.